previously on CSI Atlanta. And her mom finds her tragically on the kitchen floor. She's been beaten about the head, strangled with her own jump rope, raped, and sodomized with a broomstick. We're talking a baby, a child. Yeah. When her mama found her, her mama, of course, freaks out, starts screaming for help. This person, and we'll just call him Mr. W. Mr. W runs into the apartment under the guise of he's trying to revive her. He's trying to help. And he says that's how his palm print got on the refrigerator. I'm CBS 46 anchor Karen Greer, and you're listening to CSI Atlanta, the podcast. Each episode, I'll take you on a deep dive into some of Georgia's cold cases. I'm working alongside CBS 46 crime scene investigator Cheryl Mack McCollum and her team at the Cold Case Investigative Research Institute. As 12-year-old Bercola Coleman was laid to rest, people who loved her yearned to know who was responsible for their enormous loss. It was a question that followed her neighbors home and hovered over the cluster of squat brick apartment buildings where Bercola was killed. Was there a killer among them? Answering that question was no easy task for the Atlanta Police Department. Articles by both the New York Times and the Associated Press, published months after Bercola's murder, shed light on the rampant crime the city was trying to fight in 1989. Bercola is noted in those articles as one of the number of children killed in Atlanta's most crime-riddled neighborhoods. It was drug-infested. That same year, the city's controversial Red Dog Anti-Drug Task Force was born, part of the effort to curb Atlanta's crack cocaine epidemic. The Red Dogs were known to have aggressive tactics as they swept the city streets for drugs, focusing heavily on housing projects like the one Bricola called home. It would be easy to chalk her murder up as one of many in the late 1980s, a poor child of color living in an open-air drug market. As criminals took over the neighborhood, her mother once thought was safe. But Max says even in neighborhoods with the highest crime rates, people would want to see justice for Bacola. Here's the thing. <laughs> when I used to work Zone 3, I mean, I worked Thomasville, Inglewood, Mechanicsville, and there was a lot of things they would not talk to law enforcement about. They, they don't want to talk about drug dealers. They don't want to talk about prostitution. They don't want to talk about anything like that. But you hurt a child, and all bets are off. So again, this neighborhood had a hundred people go door to door. Period. People would talk if they could. I believe they didn't know anything. Bercola's case file notes the many conversations police were having with her neighbors. A nine-year-old child told police she was harassed by a man near a MARTA train station. Two women said they saw a suspicious man at Bercola's funeral. 
Several more neighbors recalled seeing a man sitting on the hood of his car in the parking lot of the apartment complex that day. He left when police showed up, but he continued to drive by periodically in the hours after Bacola's body was discovered. Police noted potential suspects at the time, too. One man had committed a similar crime years before, but was ruled out because he was serving a prison sentence when Bercola was killed. Several other names are jotted down in the case file, all persons of interest who police looked into, then ultimately ruled out. For the most part, the people who talked to police said they saw or interacted with Bricola as she made her way to the laundry room that afternoon. One person even said they helped her put the laundry basket on her bike, but they didn't recall anything out of the ordinary. That assumption that something out of the ordinary had to have happened could be the reason her murder has gone unsolved all these years later. People may have been looking so hard for someone who didn't belong that they ignored the signs that Bricola's murder was likely committed by someone she knew, someone the neighborhood knew. This person was able to get in and out of that neighborhood unseen, which means he belonged there. Nobody was looking for him because he's a staple. They didn't see anything out of the ordinary, anything that shouldn't have been there. He belonged there because his mom lived there. Absolutely. He visited frequently. No question. You don't tend to note things that are supposed to happen. It wasn't until 1992, three years after Bacola's murder, that police realized there was one person who fit that description. A man, Mac refers to as Mr. W, ran to Bacola's apartment when he heard her mother screaming. Police noted in the case file Mr. W had fresh scratch marks on his right arm, his wrist, and his hand when they first spoke to him that day. He told police he rushed in and tried to revive Bracola. This detail stands out to Mac. Because here's the reality about him trying to revive her, right? He made the statement, I went in to try to help her. I felt like she needed my breath. Okay, that's odd. But the other thing is, not only can we put him there, when he says when he got in there, he thought she was still alive. That means you were in close enough proximity to that apartment, M7, right, within feet that you could get there while she was still alive? It was a fact corroborated by a neighbor. Notes in the case file show at least one person told police they saw Mr. W. talking to Bercola that afternoon. Another person said they saw Mr. W. go into Bercola's apartment. Not one person saw anybody in the neighborhood that didn't fit. Not one person gave them a vehicle that had a description that didn't belong there. Nobody heard her scream. Nobody saw anybody run away. He was it. What you said, chances are it was one of their own. Police had this person of interest. Mm -hmm. What happened? <laughs> Ricola's crime happened in 1989. Uh, in 1992, another woman was raped in Cobb County. Now here's where it gets interesting. The person that raped the woman in Cobb County was Mr. W. The parallels of these two cases, I've, I've written down just a couple, if I could go through them for Please. you. 
Max says first, Mr. W was familiar with Bricola's apartment complex. Not only did his mother live there, but Bricola's mother told police she knew him very well. And so did Bricola. When they asked her about Mr. W, she said that she could not believe or fathom that he would have harmed her because he had known her basically her whole life. The reality is, children are harmed by their own parents, by uncles and cousins and siblings all the time. So we don't need to act like because this person knew her since she was a little, you know, baby, that he would not hurt her. Of course he would. People do it all the time. And again, that would be the motive to kill her. He couldn't have left her alive. Similarly, Mr. W knew the woman who was raped in Cobb County, which is just outside of Atlanta. The woman that was raped in Cobb County, he worked in the same building as her and knew her. So he frequented both places, was very comfortable, how to get in, how to get out unseen in both places. He knew both victims. The crime occurred both times when the victim was alone and he knew it. Um, both times he overpowered the victim from behind so that she wasn't looking directly at him. In Bracola's case, he choked her with her own jump rope. In the woman's case in Cobb County, he strangled her unconscious with a broom. The most disturbing similarity in the cases is the way both victims were harmed. He sodomized Bracola with a broom handle. He sodomized the woman in Cobb County with a broom handle. He raped Bracola. He raped the woman in Cobb County. He killed Bracola. He threatened repeatedly to kill the woman in Cobb County. A man that was mopping the floor in the same office building interrupted him and he let her go in Cobb County. But Bracola, I mean, obviously we know he killed her. There was one more crime that police connected to Mr. W. during this time. In 1990, his girlfriend, 19-year-old Felicia McGee, was found dead in her Atlanta apartment. She'd been beaten, then drowned in her bathtub. The couple had a four-year-old son together. The four-year-old at the scene says, Daddy killed my mama. <laughs> oh my so again, this man's name keeps coming up with violence toward women, women that he knows women in apartments, women that he catches off guard in some way. Mr. W. was ultimately convicted in the Cobb County rape case. He currently is serving three life sentences. Felicia's murder, like Bracola's, remains unsolved. That's two murders within a year of each other that have gone unsolved. Two sets of families without closure, left only dreaming of what the world would be like with Bracola and Felicia still in it. And two cases where police had a clear person of interest with a violent conviction to his name. So why wasn't he ever charged with murder? In Bracola's case, it came down to skin tissue under her fingernails, because in 2000, the Fulton County District Attorney had that tissue tested by a private lab. The test concluded the skin tissue beneath Bricola's fingernails did not come from Mr. W. I think when the DNA came back did not match him, they were back to square one and there was nobody else. 
next time on CSI Atlanta. So it's not a big deal that the, the skin under her fingernails was not his. It's possibly not a big deal. It's very difficult to believe that somebody could rape and sodomize and murder and never commit another one. I don't buy that. So if there's not a hit, I think it's not the perpetrator. Until then, subscribe to CSI Atlanta, the podcast, and check out our full stories on CBS46.com. CSI Atlanta is brought to you by CBS 46, WGCL in Atlanta, Georgia. This podcast is hosted by me, Karen Greer, and CBS 46 crime scene investigator Cheryl Mack McCollum. This episode was produced by Rhiannon Youngbauer and Natasha Lee, with sound design by Ray Merriman.